Part eight of the Lady of the Shroud by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part eight. Book five. A ritual at midnight. Rupert's journal continued. June twentieth, nineteen o seven. The time has gone as quickly as work can affect since I saw my lady. As I told the mountaineers, Rook, whom I had sent on the service, had made a contract for 50,000 Ingus Malpern rifles and as many tons of ammunition as the French experts calculated to be a full supply for a year of warfare. I heard from him by our secret telegraph code that the order had been completed and that the goods were already on the way. The morning after the meeting at the flagstaff, I had word that at night the vessel, one chartered by Rook for the purpose, would arrive at Vissaria during the night. We were all expectation. I had always now in the castle a signalling party, the signals being renewed as fast as the men were sufficiently expert to proceed with their practice alone or in groups. We hoped that every fighting man in the country would in time become an expert signaller. Beyond these, again, we have always a few priests. The church of the country is a militant church. Its priests are soldiers, its bishops commanders. But they all serve wherever the battle most needs them. Naturally, they, as men of brains, are quicker at learning than the average mountaineers, with the result that they learnt the code in the signalling almost by instinct. We have now at least one such expert in each community of them, and shortly the priests alone will be able to signal, if need be, for the nation, thus releasing for active service the merely fighting man. The men at present with me I took into confidence as to the vessel's arrival, and we were all ready for work when the man on the lookout at the flagstaff sent word that a vessel, without lights, was creeping in towards shore. We all assembled on the rocky edge of the creek, and saw her steal up the creek and gain the shelter of the harbour. When this had been effected, we ran out the boom, which protects the opening, and after that the great armoured sliding gates, which Uncle Roger had himself had made so as to protect the harbour in case of need. We then came within, and assisted in warping the steamer to the side of the dock. Rook looked fit, and was full of fire and vigour. His responsibility and the mere thought of warlike action seemed to have renewed his youth. When we had arranged for the unloading of the cases of arms and ammunition, I took Rook into the room which we call my office, where he gave me an account of his doings. He had not only secured the rifles and the ammunition for them, but he had purchased from one of the small American republics an armoured yacht which had been especially built for war service. He grew quite enthusiastic, even excited, as he told me of her. She is the last word in naval construction, a torpedo yacht, a small cruiser with turbines up to date, oil fueled, and fully armed with the latest and most perfect weapons and explosives of all kinds. The fastest boat afloat today, built by Thornycroft, engined by Parsons, armored by Armstrong, armed by Krupp. If she ever comes into action, it will be bad for her opponent, for she need not fear to tackle anything less than a dreadnought. He also told me that from the same government, whose nation had just established an unlooked-for peace, he had also purchased a whole pack of artillery of the very latest patterns, and that for range and accuracy the guns were held to be supreme. These would follow before long, and with them their proper ammunition, with a shipload of the same to follow shortly after. When he had told me all the rest of his news and handed me the accounts, we went out to the dock to see the debarkation of the war material. Knowing that it was arriving, I had sent word in the afternoon to the mountaineers to tell them to come and remove it. They had answered the call, and it really seemed to me that the whole of the land must that night have been in motion. They came as individuals, grouping themselves as they came within the defences of the castle. Some had gathered at fixed points on the way. They went secretly and in silence, stealing through the forests like ghosts, each party, when it grouped, taking the place of that which had gone on one of the routes radiating round Vissaria. Their coming and going was more than ghostly. It was, indeed, the outward manifestation of an inward spirit, a whole nation dominated by one common purpose. The men in the steamer were nearly all engineers, mostly British, well-conducted, and to be depended upon. Rook had picked them separately, and in the doing had used well his great experience of both men and adventurous life. 
these men were to form part of the armored yacht's crew when she should come into the mediterranean waters they and the priests and fighting men in the castle worked well together and with a zeal that was beyond praise the heavy cases seemed almost of their own accord to leave the holds so fast came the procession of them along the gangways from deck to dock wall it was a part of my design that the arms should be placed in centres ready for local distribution in such a country as this without railways or even roads the distribution of war material in any quantity is a great labour for it has to be done individually or at least from centres but of this work the great number of mountaineers who were arriving made little account as fast as the ship's company with the assistance of the priests and fighting men placed the cases on the quay the engineers opened them and laid the contents ready for portage the mountaineers seemed to come in a continuous stream each in turn shouldered his burden and passed out the captain of his section giving him as he passed his instruction where to go and in what route the method had been already prepared in my office ready for such a distribution when the arms should arrive and descriptions and quantities had been noted by the captains the whole affair was treated by all as a matter of the utmost secrecy hardly a word was spoken beyond the necessary directions and these were given in whispers all night long the stream of men went and came and towards dawn the bulk of the imported material was lessened by half on the following night the remainder was removed after my own men had stored in the castle the rifles and ammunition reserved for its defence if necessary it was advisable to keep a reserve supply in case it should ever be required the following night rook went away secretly in the chartered vessel he had to bring back with him the purchased cannon and heavy ammunition which had been in the meantime stored on one of the greek islands the second morning having had secret word that the steamer was on the way i had given the signal for the assembling of the mountaineers a little after dark the vessel showing no light stole into the creek the barrier gates were once again closed and when a sufficient number of men had arrived to handle the guns we began to unload the actual deportation was easy enough for the dock had all necessary appliances quite up to date including a pair of shears for gun lifting which could be raised into position in a very short time the guns were well furnished with tackle of all sorts and before many hours had passed a little procession of them disappeared into the woods in ghostly silence a number of men surrounded each and they moved as well as if properly supplied with horses in the meantime and for a week after the arrival of the guns the drilling went on without pause the gun drill was wonderful in the arduous work necessary for it the great strength and stamina of the mountaineers showed out wonderfully they did not seem to know fatigue any more than they knew fear for a week this went on till a perfect discipline and management was obtained they did not practice the shooting for this would have made secrecy impossible it was reported all along the turkish frontier that the sultan's troops were being massed and though this was not on a war footing the movement was more or less dangerous the reports of our own spies although vague as to the purpose and extent of the movement were definite as to something being on foot and turkey does not do something without a purpose that bodes ill to someone certainly the sounding of cannon which is a far-reaching sound would have given them warning of our preparations and would so have sadly minimized their effectiveness when the cannon had all been disposed of except of course those destined for defence of the castle or to be stored there rook went away with the ship and crew the ship he was to return to the owners the men would be shipped on the war yacht of whose crew they would form a part the rest of them had been carefully selected by rook himself and were kept in secrecy at katero ready for service the moment required they were all good men and quite capable of whatever work they might be set to so rook told me and he ought to know the experience of his young days as a private made him an expert in such a job rupert's journal continued june twenty fourth nineteen o seven last night i got from my lady a similar message to the last and delivered in a similar way this time however our meeting was to be kept on the leads of the keep i dressed myself very carefully before going on this adventure lest by any chance of household concern any of the servants should see me for if this should happen aunt janet would be sure to hear of it which would give rise to 
endless surmises and questionings, a thing I was far from desiring. I confess that in thinking the matter over during the time I was making my hurried preparations, I was at a loss to understand how any human body, even though it be of the dead, could go or be conveyed to such a place without some sort of assistance, or at least collusion, on the part of some of the inmates. At the visit of the flagstaff, circumstances were different. This spot was actually outside the castle, and in order to reach it, I myself had to leave the castle privately, and from the garden ascend to the ramparts. But here was no such possibility. The keep was an imperium in imperio. It stood within the castle, though separated from it, and it had its own defences against intrusion. The roof of it was, so far as I knew, as little approachable as the magazine. The difficulty did not, however, trouble me beyond a mere passing thought. In the joy of the coming meeting, and the longing rapture at the mere thought of it, all difficulties disappeared. Love makes its own faith, and I never doubted that my lady would be waiting for me at the place designated. When I had passed through the little arched passages and up the doubly grated stairways contrived in the massiveness of the walls, I let myself out on the leads. It was well that as yet the times were sufficiently peaceful not to necessitate guards or sentries at all such points. There, in a dim corner where the moonlight and the passing clouds threw deep shadows, I saw her, clothed as ever in her shroud. Why, I know not. I felt somehow that the situation was even more serious than ever. But I was steeled to whatever might come. My mind had been already made up. To carry out my resolve to win the woman I loved, I was ready to face death. But now, after we had for a few brief moments held each other in our arms, I was willing to accept death, or more than death. Now, more than before, was she sweet and dear to me. Whatever qualms there might have been at the beginning of our love-making, or during the progress of it, did not now exist. We had exchanged vows and confidences and acknowledged our loves. What then could there be of distrust or even doubt that the present might not set at naught? But even had there been such doubts or qualms, they must have disappeared in the ardour of our mutual embrace. I was by now mad for her and was content to be so mad. When she had breath to speak after the strictness of our embrace, she said, I have come to warn you to be more than ever careful. It was, I confess, a pang to me, who thought only of love, to hear that anything else should have been the initiative power of her coming, even though it had been her concern for my own safety. I could not but notice the bitter note of chagrin in my voice as I answered, It was for love's sake that I came. She too evidently felt the undercurrent of pain, for she said quickly, Ah, dearest, I too came for love's sake. It is because I love you that I am so anxious about you. What would the world, I or heaven, be to me without you? There was such earnest truth in her tone that the sense and realization of my own harshness smote me. In the presence of such love as this, even a lover's selfishness must become abashed. I could not express myself in words, so simply raised her slim hand in mine and kissed it. As it lay warm in my own, I could not but notice, as well as its fineness, its strength, and the firmness of its clasp. Its warmth and fervor struck into my heart and my brain. Thereupon, I poured out to her once more my love for her, she listening, all afire. When passionate had its say, the calmer emotions had opportunity of expression. When I was satisfied afresh of her affection, I began to value her care for my safety, and so I went back to the subject. Her very insistence, based on personal affection, gave me more solid ground for fear. In the moment of love transports I had forgotten, or did not think, of what wonderful power or knowledge she must have to be able to move in such strange ways as she did. Why, at this very moment she was within my own gates. Locks and bars, even the very seal of death itself, seemed unable to make for her a prison house. With such freedom of action and movement, going when she would into secret places, what might she not know that was known to others? How could anyone keep secret from such an one, even an ill intent, 
such thoughts such surmises had often flashed through my mind in moments of excitement rather than of reflection but never long enough to become fixed into belief but yet the consequences the convictions of them were with me though unconsciously though the thoughts themselves were perhaps forgotten or withered before development and you i asked her earnestly what about danger to you she smiled her little pearl-white teeth gleaming in the moonlight as she spoke there is no danger for me i am safe i am the safest person perhaps the only safe person in all this land the full significance of her words did not seem to come to me all at once some base for understanding such an assertion seemed to be wanting it was not that i did not trust or believe her but that i thought she might be mistaken i wanted to reassure myself so in my distress i asked unthinkingly how the safest what is your protection for several moments that spun themselves out endlessly she looked me straight in the face the stars in her eyes seeming to glow like fire then lowering her head she took a fold of her shroud and held it up to me this the meaning was complete and understandable now i could not speak at once for the wave of emotion which choked me i dropped on my knees and taking her in my arms held her close to me she saw that i was moved and tenderly stroked my hair and with delicate touch pressed down my head on her bosom as a mother might have done to comfort a frightened child presently we got back to the realities of life again i murmured your safety your life your happiness are all in all to me when will you let them be my care she trembled in my arms nestling even closer to me her own arms seemed to quiver with delight as she said would you indeed like me to be always with you to me it would be a happiness unspeakable and to you what would it be i thought that she wished to hear me speak my love to her and that woman-like she had led me to the utterance and so i spoke again of the passion that now raged in me she listening eagerly as we strained each other tight in our arms at last there came a pause a long long pause and our hearts beat consciously in unison as we stood together presently she said in a sweet low intense whisper as soft as the sighing of summer wind it shall be as you wish but oh my dear you will have to first go through an ordeal which may try you terribly do not ask me anything you must not ask because i may not answer and it would be pain to me to deny you anything marriage with such an one as i am has its own ritual which may not be forgone it may i broke passionately into her speaking there is no ritual that i fear so long as it be that it is for your good and your lasting happiness and if the end of it be that i may call you mine there is no horror in life or death that i shall not gladly face dear i ask you nothing i am content to leave myself in your hands you shall advise me when the time comes and i shall be satisfied content to obey content it is but a poor word to express what i long for i shall shirk nothing which may come to me from this or any other world so long as it is to make you mine once again her murmured happiness was music to my ears oh how you love me how you love me dear dear she took me in her arms and for a few seconds we hung together Suddenly she tore herself apart from me and stood drawn up to the full height with a dignity I cannot describe or express. Her voice had a new dominance as, with firm utterance and in a staccato manner, she said, Rupert, said Ledger, before we go a step further, I must say something to you, ask you something, and I charge you on your most sacred honor and belief to answer me truly do you believe me to be one of those unhappy beings who may not die but have to live in shameful existence between earth and the nether world and whose hellish mission is to destroy body and soul those who love them till they fall to their level 
you are a gentleman and a brave one i have found you fearless answer me in sternest truth no matter what the issue may be she stood there in the glamorous moonlight with a commanding dignity which seemed more than human in that mystic light her white shroud seemed diaphanous and she appeared like a spirit of power what was i to say how could i admit to such a being that i had actually had at moments if not a belief passing doubt it was a conviction with me that if i spoke wrongly i should lose her forever i was in a desperate strait in such a case there is but one solid ground which one may rest on the truth i really felt i was between the devil and the deep sea there was no avoiding the issue and so out of this all-embracing all-compelling conviction of truth i spoke for a fleeting moment i felt that my tone was truculent and almost hesitated but as i saw no anger or indignation on my lady's face but rather an eager approval i was reassured a woman after all is glad to see a man strong for all belief in him must be based on that i shall speak the truth remember that i have no wish to hurt your feelings but as you conjure me by my honour you must forgive me if i pain it is true that i had at first i and later when i came to think matters over after you had gone when reason came to the aid of impression a passing belief that you are a vampire how can i fail to have even now though i love you with all my soul though i have held you in my arms and kissed you on the mouth a doubt when all the evidences seem to point to one thing remember that i have only seen you at night except that bitter moment when in the broad noonday of the upper world i saw you clad as ever in a shroud lying seemingly dead in a tomb in the crypt of st Sava's church but let that pass such belief as i have is all in you be you woman or vampire it is all the same to me it is you whom i love should it be that you are you are not woman which i cannot believe then it will be my glory to break your fetters to open your prison and set you free to that i consecrate my life for a few seconds i stood silent vibrating with the passion which had been awakened in me she had by now lost the measure of her haughty isolation and had softened into womanhood again it was really like a realization of the old theme of pygmalion's statue it was with rather a pleading than a commanding voice that she said to me and shall you always be true to me always so help me god i answered and i felt that there could be no lack of conviction in my voice indeed there was no cause for such lack she also stood for a little while stone still and i was beginning to expand to the rapture which was in store for me when she should take me again in her arms but there was no such moment of softness all at once she started as if she had suddenly wakened from a dream and on the spur of the moment said now go go i felt the conviction of necessity to obey and turned at once as i moved towards the door by which i had entered i asked when shall i see you again soon came her answer i shall let you know soon when and where oh go go she almost pushed me from her when i had passed through the low doorway and locked and barred it behind me i felt a pang that i should have had to shut her out like that but i feared lest there should arise some embarrassing suspicion if the door should be found open later came the comforting thought that as she had got to the roof though the door had been shut she would be able to get away by the same means she had evidently knowledge of some secret way into the castle the alternative was that she must have some supernatural quality or faculty which gave her strange powers i did not wish to pursue that train of thought and so after an effort shut it out from my mind when i got back to my room i locked the door behind me and went to sleep in the dark i did not want light just then could not bear it this morning i woke a little later than usual with a kind of apprehension which i could not at once understand 
Presently, however, when my faculties became fully awake and in working order, I realized that I feared, half expected, that Aunt Janet would come to me in a worse state of alarm than ever, apropos some new second sight experience of more than usual ferocity. But, strange to say, I had no such visit. Later on in the morning, when after breakfast we walked together through the garden, I asked her how she had slept, and if she had dreamt. She answered me that she had slept without waking, and if she had had any dreams, they must have been pleasant ones, for she did not remember them. And you know, Rupert, that if there be anything bad or fearsome or warning in dreams, I always remember them. Later still, when I was by myself on the cliff beyond the creek, I could not help commenting on the absence of her power of second sight on the occasion. Surely, if ever there was a time when she might have had cause of apprehension, it might well have been when I asked the lady whom she did not know to marry me, the lady of whose identity I knew nothing, even whose name I did not know, whom I loved with all my heart and soul, my lady of the shroud. I have lost faith in second sight. Rupert's Journal, continued, July 1st, 1907. Another week gone. I have waited patiently, and I am at last rewarded by another letter. I was preparing for bed a little while ago, when I heard the same mysterious sound at the door as on the last two occasions. I hurried to the glass door, and there found another close-folded letter, but I could see no sign of my lady, or of any other living being. The letter, which was without direction, ran as follows. If you are still of the same mind, and feel no misgivings, meet me at the Church of St. Sava beyond the creek tomorrow night, at a quarter before midnight. If you come, come in secret, and of course alone. Do not come at all unless you are prepared for a terrible ordeal. But if you love me, and have neither doubts nor fears, come. Come. Needless to say, I did not sleep that night. I tried to, but without success. It was no morbid happiness that kept me awake, no doubting, no fear. I was simply overwhelmed with the idea of the coming rapture, when I should call my lady my very, very own. In this sea of happy expectation, all lesser things were submerged. Even sleep, which is an imperative force with me, failed in its usual effectiveness, and I lay still, calm content. With the coming of the morning, however, restlessness began. I did not know what to do, how to restrain myself, where to look for an anodyne. Happily, the latter came in the shape of Rourke, who turned up shortly after breakfast. He had a satisfactory tale to tell me of the armoured yacht, which had lain off Cataro on the previous night, and to which he had brought his contingent of crew, which had waited for her coming. He did not like to take the risk of going into any port with such a vessel, lest he might be detained or otherwise hampered by forms, and had gone out on the open sea before daylight. There was on board the yacht a tiny torpedo boat, for which provision was made both for hoisting on deck and housing there. This last would run into the creek at ten o'clock that evening, at which time it would be dark. The yacht would then run to near Otranto, to which she would send a boat to get any message I might send. This was to be in a code which we arranged, and would convey instructions as to what night and approximate hour the yacht would come to the creek. The day was well on before we had made certain arrangements for the future, and not till then did I feel again the pressure of my personal restlessness. Rook, like a wise commander, took rest whilst he could. Well, he knew that for a couple of days and nights, at least, there would be little, if any, sleep for him. For myself, the habit of self-control stood to me, and I managed to get through the day somehow without exciting the attention of anyone else. The arrival of the torpedo boat and the departure of Rook made for me a welcome break in my uneasiness. An hour ago, I said good-night to Aunt Janet and shut myself up alone here. My watch is on the table before me so that I may make sure of starting to the moment. I have allowed myself half an hour to reach St. Saba. My skiff is waiting, moored at the foot of the cliff on the hither side, where the zigzag comes close to the water. It is now ten minutes past eleven. I shall add the odd five minutes to the time for my journey so as to make safe. I go unarmed and without a light. 
I shall show no distrust of anyone or anything this night. Rupert's Journal, Continued, July 2nd, 1907 When I was outside the church, I looked at my watch in the bright moonlight and found I had one minute to wait. So I stood in the shadow of the doorway and looked out at the scene before me. Not a sign of life was visible around me, either on land or sea. On the broad plateau on which the church stands, there was no movement of any kind. The wind, which had been pleasant in the noontide, had fallen completely, and not a leaf was stirring. I could see across the creek, and note the hard line where the battlements of the castle cut the sky, and where the keep towered above the line of black rock, which in the shadow of the land made an ebon frame for the picture. When I had seen the same view on former occasions, the line where the rock rose from the sea was a fringe of white foam. But then, in the daylight, the sea was sapphire blue. Now it was an expanse of dark blue, so dark as to seem almost black. It had not even the relief of waves or ripples, simply a dark, cold, lifeless expanse, with no gleam of light anywhere, of lighthouse or ship. Neither was there any special sound to be heard that one could distinguish, nothing but the distant hum of the myriad voices of the dark, mingling in one ceaseless, inarticulate sound. It was well I had not time to dwell on it, or I might have reached some spiritually disturbing melancholy. Let me say here that ever since I had received my lady's message concerning this visit to St. Sava's, I had been all on fire not perhaps at every moment consciously or actually so but always as it were prepared to break out into flame did i want a simile i might compare myself to a well-banked furnace whose present function it is to contain heat rather than to create it whose crust can at any moment be broken by a force external to itself and burst into raging all-compelling heat no thought of fear really entered my mind Every other emotion there was, coming and going as occasion excited or lulled, but not fear. Well, I knew in the depths of my heart the purpose which that secret quest was to serve. I knew not only from my lady's words, but from the teachings of my own senses and experiences, that some dreadful ordeal must take place before happiness of any kind could be won. And that ordeal, though method or detail was unknown to me, I was prepared to undertake. This was one of those occasions when a man must undertake, blindfold, ways that may lead to torture or death, or unknown terrors beyond. But then, a man, if indeed he have the heart of a man, can always undertake. He can at least make the first step, though it may turn out that, through the weakness of mortality, he may be unable to fulfill his own intent, or justify his belief in his own powers. Such, I take it, was the intellectual attitude of the brave souls who of old faced the tortures of the Inquisition. But though there was no immediate fear, there was a certain doubt. For doubt is one of those mental conditions whose calling we cannot control. The end of the doubting may not be a reality to us, or be accepted as a possibility. These things cannot forgo the existence of the doubt. For even if a man, says Victor Cousin, doubt everything else, at least he cannot doubt that he doubts. The doubt had at times been on me that my Lady of the Shroud was a vampire. Much that had happened seemed to point that way, and here, on the very threshold of the unknown, when through the door which I was pushing open, my eyes met only an expanse of absolute blackness, all doubts which had ever been seemed to surround me in a legion. I have heard that when a man is drowning, there comes a time when his whole life passes in review during the space of time which cannot be computed as even a part of a second. So it was to me in the moment of my body passing into the church. In that moment came to my mind all that had been which bore on the knowledge of my lady. And the general tendency was to prove or convince that she was indeed a vampire. Much that had happened or become known to me seemed to justify the resolving of doubt into belief. Even my own reading of the books in Aunt Janet's little library, and the dear lady's comments on them, mingled with her own uncanny beliefs, left little opening for doubt. My having to help my lady over the threshold of my house on her first entry 
was in accord with vampire tradition. So, too, her flying at cockcrow from the warmth in which she reveled on that strange first night of our meeting. So, too, her swift departure at midnight on the second. Into the same category came the facts of her constant wearing of her shroud, even her pledging herself, and me also, on the fragment torn from it, which she had given to me as a souvenir. Her lying still in the glass-covered tomb, her coming alone to the most secret places in a fortified castle, where every aperture was secured by unopened locks and bolts. Her very movements, though all of grace, as she flitted noiselessly through the gloom of night. All these things, and a thousand others of lesser import, seem for the moment to have consolidated an initial belief. But then came the supreme recollections of how she had lain in my arms, of her kisses on my lips, of the beating of her heart against my own, of her sweet words of belief and faith breathed in my ear in intoxicating whispers, of... I paused. No! I could not accept belief as to her being other than a living woman, of soul and sense, of flesh and blood, of all the sweet and passionate instincts of true and perfect womanhood. And so, in spite of all, in spite of all beliefs fixed or transitory, with a mind whirling amid contesting forces and compelling beliefs, I stepped into the church, overwhelmed with that most receptive of atmospheres, doubt. In one thing only was I fixed. Here, at least, was no doubt or misgiving whatever. I intended to go through what I had undertaken. Moreover, I felt that I was strong enough to carry out my intention, whatever might be of the unknown, however horrible, however terrible. When I had entered the church and closed the heavy door behind me, the sense of darkness and loneliness in all their horror enfolded me round. The great church seemed a living mystery, and served as an almost terrible background to thoughts and remembrances of unutterable gloom. My adventurous life has had its own schooling to endurance, and upholding one's courage in trying times, but it has its contra and fullness of memory. I felt my way forward with both hands and feet. Every second seemed as if it had brought me at last to a darkness which was actually tangible. All at once, and with no heed of sequence or order, I was conscious of all around me, the knowledge or perception of which, or even speculation on the subject, had never entered my mind. They furnished the darkness with which I was encompassed with all the crowded phases of a dream. I knew that all around me were memorials of the dead, that in the crypt Deep wrought in the rock below my feet lay the dead themselves. Some of them, perhaps, one of them I knew, had even passed the grim portals of time unknown, and had by some mysterious power or agency come back again to material earth. There was no resting place for thought when I knew that the very air that I breathed might be full of denizens of the spirit world. In that impenetrable blackness was a world of imagining, whose possibilities of horror were endless. I almost fancied that I could see with mortal eyes down through that rocky floor to where in the lonely crypt lay in her tomb of massive stone and under that bewildering coverlet of glass the woman whom I love. I could see her beautiful face, her long black lashes, her sweet mouth, which I had kissed, relaxed in the sleep of death. I could note the voluminous shroud, a piece of which, as a precious souvenir, lay even then so close to my heart. The snowy woollen coverlet wrought over in gold with sprigs of pine, the soft dent in the cushion on which her head must for so long have lain. I could see myself, within my eyes, the memory of that first visit, coming once again with glad step to renew that dear sight. Dear, though it scorched my eyes and harrowed my heart, and finding the greater sorrow, the greater desolation, of the empty tomb. There I felt that I must think no more of that, lest the thought should unnerve me when I should most want all my courage. That way madness lay, 
the darkness had already sufficient terrors of its own without bringing to it such grim remembrances and imaginings and i had yet to go through some ordeal which even to her who had passed and repassed the portals of death was full of fear it was a merciful relief to me when in groping my way forwards through the darkness i struck against some portion of the furnishings of the church fortunately i was all strung up to tension else i should never have been able to control instinctively as i did the shriek which was rising to my lips i would have given anything to have been able to light even a match a single second of light would i felt have made me my own man again but i knew that this would be against the implied condition of my being there at all and might have had disastrous consequences to her whom i had come to save it might even frustrate my scheme and altogether destroy my opportunity at that moment it was borne upon me more strongly than ever that this was not a mere fight for myself for my own selfish purposes not merely an adventure or a struggle for only life and death against unknown difficulties and dangers it was a fight on behalf of her i loved not merely for her life but perhaps even for her soul and yet this very thinking understanding created a new form of terror for in that grim shrouding darkness came memories of other moments of terrible stress of wild mystic rites held in the deep gloom of african forests when amid scenes of revolting horror obi and the devils of his kind seemed to reveal themselves to reckless worshippers surfeited with horror whose lives counted for naught when even human sacrifice was an episode and the reek of old deviltries and recent carnage tainted the air till even i who was at the risk of my life a privileged spectator who had come through dangers without end to behold the scene rose and fled in horror of scenes of mystery enacted in rock-cut temples beyond the himalayas whose fanatic priests cold as death and as remorseless in the reaction of their frenzy of passion foamed at the mouth and then sank into marble quiet as within her eyes they beheld the visions of the hellish powers which they had invoked of wild fantastic dances of the devil worshippers of madagascar where even the very semblance of humanity disappeared in the fantastic excesses of their orgies, of strange doings of gloom and mystery in the rock-perched monasteries of Tibet, of awful sacrifices, all to mystic ends, in the innermost recesses of Cathay, of weird movements with masses of poisonous snakes by the medicine-men of the Zuni and Moki Indians in the far southwest of the Rockies, beyond the Great Plains of secret gatherings in vast temples of old mexico and by dim altars of forgotten cities in the heart of great forests in south america of rites of inconceivable horror in the fastnesses of patagonia of here i once more pulled myself up such thoughts were no kind of proper preparation for what i might have to endure my work that night was to be based on love on hope on self-sacrifice for the woman who in all the world was the closest to my heart whose future i was to share whether that sharing might lead me to hell or heaven the hand which undertook such a task must have no trembling still those horrible memories had i am bound to say a useful part in my preparation for the ordeal they were a fact which i had seen of which i had myself been in part a sharer and which i had survived with such experiences behind me could there be aught before me more dreadful moreover if the coming ordeal was of supernatural or superhuman order could it transcend in living horror the vilest and most desperate acts of the basest men with renewed courage i felt my way before me till my sense of touch told me that i was at the screen behind which lay the stair to the crypt there i waited silent still my own part was done so far as i knew how to do it beyond this what was to come was so far as i knew beyond my own control i had done what i could the rest must come from others i had exactly obeyed my instructions fulfilled my warranty to the utmost in my knowledge and power 
there was therefore left for me in the present nothing but to wait it is the peculiarity of absolute darkness that it creates its own reaction the eye wearied of the blackness begins to imagine forms of light how far this is effected by imagination pure and simple i know not it may be that nerves have their own senses that bring thought to the depository common to all human functions but whatever may be the mechanism or the objective the darkness seems to people itself with luminous entities so it was with me as i stood lonely in the dark silent church here and there seemed to flash tiny points of light in the same way the silence began to be broken now and again by strange muffled sounds the suggestion of sounds rather than actual vibrations these were all at first of the minor importance of movement rustlings creakings faint stirrings fainter breathings presently when i had somewhat recovered from the sort of hypnotic trance to which the darkness and stillness had during the time of waiting reduced me i looked around in wonder the phantoms of light and sound seemed to have become real there were most certainly actual little points of light in places not enough to see details by but quite sufficient to relieve the utter gloom i thought though it may have been a mingling of recollection and imagination that i could distinguish the outlines of a church certainly the great altar screen was dimly visible instinctively i looked up and thrilled there hung high above me was surely enough a great greek cross outlined by tiny points of light i lost myself in wonder and stood still in a purely receptive mood unantagonistic to aught willing for whatever might come ready for all things in rather a negative than a positive mood a mood which has an aspect of spiritual meekness this is the true spirit of the neophyte and though i did not think of it at the time the proper attitude for what is called by the church in whose temple i stood a neo-nymph as the light grew a little in power though never increasing enough for distinctness i saw dimly before me a table on which rested a great open book whereon were laid two rings one of silver the other of gold and two crowns wrought of flowers bound at the joining of their stems with tissue one of gold the other of silver i do not know much of the ritual of the old greek church which is the religion of the blue mountains but the things which i saw before me could be none other than enlightening symbols instinctively i knew that i had been brought hither though in this grim way to be married the very idea of it thrilled me to the heart's core i thought the best thing i could do would be to stay quite still and not show surprise at anything that might happen but be sure i was all eyes and ears i peered anxiously around me in every direction but i could see no sign of her whom i had come to meet incidentally however i noticed that in the lighting such as it was there was no flame no living light whatever light there was came muffled as though through some green translucent stone the whole effect was terribly weird and disconcerting presently i started as seemingly out of the darkness beside me a man's hand stretched out and took mine turning i found close to me a tall man with shining black eyes and long black hair and beard he was clad in some kind of gorgeous robe of cloth of gold rich with variety of adornment his head was covered with a high overhanging hat draped closely with a black scarf the ends of which formed a long hanging veil on either side these veils, falling over the magnificent robes of cloth of gold, had an extraordinarily solemn effect. I yielded myself to the guiding hand, and shortly found myself, so far as I could see, at one side of the sanctuary. In the floor close to my feet was a yawning chasm, into which, from so high over my head that in the uncertain light I could not distinguish its origin, hung a chain. At the sight, a strange wave of memory swept over me, I could not but remember the chain which hung over the glass-covered tomb in the crypt, and I had an instinctive feeling 
that the grim chasm in the floor of the sanctuary was but the other side of the opening in the roof of the crypt from which the chain over the sarcophagus depended there was a creaking sound the groaning of a windlass and the clanking of a chain there was heavy breathing close to me somewhere i was so intent on what was going on that i did not see that one by one seeming to grow out of the surrounding darkness several black figures in monkish garb appeared with the silence of ghosts their faces were shrouded in black cowls wherein were holes through which i could see dark gleaming eyes my guide held me tightly by the hand this gave me a feeling of security in the touch which helped to retain within my breast some semblance of calm the strain of the creaking windlass and the clanking chain continued for so long that the suspense became almost unendurable at last there came into sight an iron ring from which as a centre depended four lesser chains spreading wide in a few seconds more i could see that these were fixed to the corners of the great stone tomb with the covering of glass which was being dragged upward as it arose it filled closely the whole aperture when its bottom had reached the level of the floor it stopped and remained rigid there was no room for oscillation it was all at once surrounded by a number of black figures who raised the glass covering and bore it away into the darkness then there stepped forward a very tall man black bearded and with headgear like my guide but made in triple tiers he also was gorgeously arrayed in flowing robes of cloth of gold richly embroidered he raised his hand and forthwith eight other black-clad figures stepped forward and bending over the stone coffin raised from it the rigid form of my lady still clad in her shroud and laid it gently on the floor of the sanctuary i felt it a grace that at that instant the dim light seemed to grow less and finally to disappear all save the tiny points that marked the outline of the great cross high overhead these only gave light enough to accentuate the gloom the hand that held mine now released it and with a sigh i realized that i was alone after a few moments more of the groaning of the winch and clanking of the chain there was a sharp sound of stone meeting stone then there was silence i listened acutely but could not hear near me the slightest sound even the cautious restrained breathing around me of which up to then I had been conscious, had ceased. Not knowing, in the helplessness of my ignorance, what I should do, I remained as I was, still and silent, for a time that seemed endless. At last, overcome by some emotion which I could not at the moment understand, I slowly sank to my knees and bowed my head. Covering my face with my hands, I tried to recall the prayers of my youth. It was not, I am certain, that fear in any form had come upon me, or that I hesitated or faltered in my intention. That much I know now. I knew it even then. It was, I believe, that the prolonged impressive gloom and mystery had at last touched me to the quick. The bending of the knees was but symbolical of the bowing of the spirit to a higher power. When I had realized that much, I felt more content than I had done since I had entered the church, and with a renewed consciousness of courage, took my hands from my face and lifted again my bowed head. Impulsively I sprang to my feet and stood erect, waiting. All seemed to have changed since I had dropped on my knees. The points of light about the church, which had been eclipsed, had come again, and were growing in power to a partial revealing of the dim expanse. Before me was the table with the open book, on which were laid the gold and silver rings and the two crowns of flowers. There were also two tall candles, with tiniest flames of blue, the only living light to be seen. Out of the darkness stepped the same tall figure in the gorgeous robes and the triple hat. He led by the hand my lady, still clad in her shroud, but over it, descending from the crown of her head, was a veil of very old and magnificent lace of astonishing fineness. Even in that dim light I could note the exquisite beauty of the fabric. The veil was fastened with a bunch of tiny sprays of orange blossom 
mingled with cypress and laurel. A strange combination. In her hand she carried a great bouquet of the same. Its sweet intoxicating odour floated up to my nostrils. It, and the sentiment which its very presence evoked, made me quiver. Yielding to the guiding of the hand which held hers, she stood at my left side before the table. Her guide then took his place behind her. At either end of the table, to right and left of us, stood a long-bearded priest in splendid robes, and wearing the hat with depending veil of black. One of them, who seemed to be the more important of the two, and took the initiative, signed to us to put our right hands on the open book. My lady, of course, understood the ritual, and knew the words which the priest was speaking, and of her own accord put out her hand. My guide, at the same moment, directed my hand to the same end. It thrilled me to touch my lady's hand, even under such mysterious conditions. After the priest had signed us each thrice on the forehead with the sign of the cross, he gave to each of us a tiny lighted taper brought to him for the purpose. The lights were welcome, not so much for the solace of the added light, great as that was, but because it allowed us to see a little more of each other's faces. It was a rapture to me to see the face of my bride, and from the expression of her face I was assured that she felt as I did. It gave me an inexpressible pleasure when, as her eyes rested on me, there grew a faint blush over the grey pallor of her cheeks. The priest then put, in solemn voice, to each of us in turn, beginning with me, the questions of consent which are common to all such rituals. I answered as well as I could, following the murmured words of my guide. My lady answered out proudly in a voice which, though given softly, seemed to ring. It was a concern, even a grief, to me that I could not, in the priest's questioning, catch her name, of which, strangely enough, I was ignorant. But, as I did not know the language, and as the phrases were not in accord literally with our own ritual, I could not make out which word was the name. After some prayers and blessings, rhythmically spoken or sung by an invisible choir, the priest took the rings from the open book, and after signing my forehead thrice with the gold one, as he repeated the blessing in each case, placed it on my right hand. Then he gave my lady the silver one, with the same ritual thrice repeated. I suppose it was the blessing which is the effective point in making two into one. After this, those who stood behind us exchanged our rings thrice, taking them from one finger and placing them on the other, so that at the end my wife wore the gold ring and I the silver one. Then came a chant, during which the priest swung the censer himself, and my wife and I held our tapers. After that he blessed us, the responses coming from the voices of the unseen singers in the darkness. After a long ritual of prayer and blessing sung in triplicate, the priest took the crowns of flowers and put one on the head of each, crowning me first and with the crown tied with gold. Then he signed and blessed us each thrice. The guides who stood behind us exchanged our crowns thrice, as they had exchanged the rings, so that at the last I was glad to see my wife wore the crown of gold, and I that of silver. Then there came, if it is possible to describe such a thing, a hush over even that stillness, as though some form of added solemnity were to be gone through. I was not surprised, therefore, when the priest took in his hands the great golden chalice. Kneeling, my wife and I partook together thrice. When we had risen from our knees and stood for a little while, the priest took my left hand in his right, and I, by direction of my guide, gave my right hand to my wife. And so, in a line, the priest leading, we circled round the table in rhythmic measure. Those who supported us moved behind us, holding the crowns over our heads, and replacing them when we stopped. After a hymn sung through the darkness, the priest took off our crowns. This was evidently the conclusion of the ritual, for the priest placed us in each other's arms to embrace each other. Then he blessed us, who were now man and wife. The lights went out at once, some as if extinguished, others slowly fading down to blackness. Left in the dark, 
my wife and I sought each other's arms again, and stood together for a few moments heart to heart, tightly clasping each other, and kissed each other fervently. Instinctively we turned to the door of the church, which was slightly open, so that we could see the moonlight stealing in through the aperture. With even steps, she holding me tightly by the left arm, which is the wife's arm, we passed through the old church and out into the free air. Despite all that the gloom had brought me, it was sweet to be in the open air and together, this quite apart from our new relations to each other. The moon rode high, and the full light, coming after the dimness or darkness in the church, seemed as bright as day. I could now for the first time see my wife's face properly. The glamour of the moonlight may have served to enhance its ethereal beauty, but neither moonlight nor sunlight could do justice to that beauty in its living human splendour. As I gloried in her starry eyes, I could think of nothing else. But when, for a moment, my eyes, roving round for the purpose of protection, caught sight of her whole figure, there was a pang to my heart. The brilliant moonlight showed every detail in terrible effect, and I could see that she wore only her shroud. In the moment of darkness, after the last benediction, before she returned to my arms, she must have removed her bridal veil. This may, of course, have been in accordance with the established ritual of her church, but all the same my heart was sore. The glamour of calling her my very own was somewhat obscured by the bridal adornment being sure. But it made no difference in her sweetness to me. Together we went along the path through the wood, she keeping equal step with me in wifely way. When we had come through the trees near enough to see the roof of the castle, now gilded with the moonlight, she stopped, and looking at me with eyes full of love, said, Here I must leave you. What? I was all aghast, and I felt that my chagrin was expressed in the tone of horrified surprise in my voice. She went on quickly. Alas, it is impossible that I should go farther, at present. But what is to prevent you? I queried. You are now my wife. This is our wedding night and surely your place is with me. The wail in her voice as she answered touched it to the quick. Oh, I know, I know, there is no dearer wish in my heart. There can be none than to share my husband's home. Oh, my dear, my dear, if you only knew what it would be to me to be with you always. But indeed I may not. Not yet. I am not free. If you but knew how much that which has happened tonight has cost me, or how much cost to others as well as to myself may yet be to come, you would understand. Rupert. It was the first time she had ever addressed me by name, and naturally it thrilled me through and through. Rupert, my husband, only that I trust you with all the faith which is in perfect love, mutual love, I dare not have done what I have done this night. But, dear, I know that you will bear me out, that your wife's honour is your honour, even as your honour is mine. My honour is given to this, and you can help me, the only help I can have at present, by trusting me. Be patient, my beloved, be patient. Oh, be patient for a little longer. It shall not be for long. So soon as ever my soul is freed, I shall come to you, my husband and we shall never part again. Be content for a while. Believe me that I love you with my very soul, and to keep away from your dear side is more bitter for me than even it can be for you. Think, my dear one, I am not as other women are, as some day you shall clearly understand. I am at the present, and shall be for a little longer, constrained by duties and obligations put upon me by others and for others, and to which I am pledged by the most sacred promises, given not only by myself but by others, and which I must not forgo. These forbid me to do as I wish. Oh, trust me, my beloved, my husband. She held out her hands appealingly. The moonlight, falling through the thinning forest, showed her white cerements. Then the recollection of all she must have suffered the awful loneliness in that grim tomb in the crypt, 
the despairing agony of one who is helpless against the unknown swept over me in a wave of pity what could i do but save her from further pain and this could only be by showing her my faith and trust if she was to go back to that dreadful charnel house she would at least take with her the remembrance that one who loved her and whom she loved to whom she had been lately bound in the mystery of marriage trusted her to the full i loved her more than myself more than my own soul and i was moved to pity so great that all possible selfishness was merged in its depths i bowed my head before her my lady and my wife as i said so be it my beloved i trust you to the full even as you trust me and that has been proven this night even to my own doubting heart i shall wait and as i know you wish it i shall wait as patiently as i can but till you come to me for good and all let me see you or hear from you when you can the time dear wife must go heavily with me as i think of you suffering and lonely so be good to me and let not too long a time elapse between my glimpses of hope and sweetheart when you do come to me it shall be forever there was something in the intonation of the last sentence i felt its sincerity myself some implied yearning for a promise that made her beautiful eyes swim the glorious stars in them were blurred as she answered with a fervor which seemed to me as more than earthly for ever i swear it with one long kiss and a straining in each other's arms which left me tingling for long after we lost sight of each other we parted i stood and watched her as her white figure gliding through the deepening gloom faded as the forest thickened it surely was no optical delusion or a phantom of the mind that her shrouded arm was raised as though in blessing or farewell before the darkness swallowed her up. End of part eight. Recording by Thomas Copeland.